Sweet. You brought a fan? No, I mean, you know. Go Locust. Go Locust. I'm living the dream. I've got a fan in my room. Fans only. Only fans. Only, <laughs> ew, no. I, I only have a fan in my room. I don't have an only fans in yeah. my room. That would be a problem. It would be a problem, but I think, you know, it's it's unfortunate. Only fans started out, like anything, you know, it started off with good intentions. Like, it's a way for fans to connect with, you know, people they like, and, and for those, you know, celebrities to connect with their fans, make a little extra money. Um, you know, it's like the internet started off for, you know, scientists to exchange ideas and quickly, quickly evolved into a way for people to, you know, spew hatred at each other and naked pictures, you know, cat meme. Well, the cat memes is, is a good part, you know, or like how the railroad, you know, would help us cross the country and quickly became an efficient way to kill bison. Everything gets warped and gross. It just, you know, OnlyFans got warped and gross almost instantly. I mean, I, I, I personally object to both the two words warped and gross. I think that that's exactly, oh, I, I think it, I think it is... And I don't mean that in like some woke way. I don't, I'm not being like, excuse me, I'm woke. I just mean, I think that's what people, that's humans. Is like everything that's is true. going that's to true. ultimately be, that's true. you know, how can I make a quick buck? Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Our guest today is none other than Lucas Zachary Hazlitt. He's a longtime improv sketch performer. He's been at the Upright Citizens Brigade and the People's Improv Theater in New York City. You may know him from the TV shows American Princess, Wrecked, Superior Donuts. He has worked on projects for CBS, TBS, MTV, Comedy Central, The CW, and Marvel Comics. We're going to talk about his history. We're going to talk about his point of view on the work. It's going to get philosophical. There's also some bad words in this. So alert for you parents. You have to teach some kids what some of these words mean after you listen to this episode. So sit back, relax, and listen to my conversation with Lucas Hazlitt, one of my favorite people here on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. The following podcast is in no way related to Centralia, Pennsylvania. And now, direct from New York City, an island off the coast of America, it's the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. I'm unnecessarily puritanical for no reason. Like, cognitively, intellectually, I'm like, uh, people should be able to do whatever they want, and we're too oppressed, and it's not good for anyone. Um, and yet in my personal life, I am incredibly oppressed. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. It's like, also, I say to my daughter all the time, like, language doesn't matter. It's your intention. So, like, there's no bad words. It's just sounds your mouth makes. And mm-hmm. yet I never utter a curse word or four-letter word. Certainly not around her. It's a real dichotomy. It seems to me that you are a parent it's apparent that I'm a parent. It's a, it's really apparent how much of a parent you apparently are. <laughs> that you you like that's not something that has ever crossed my mind because I don't have children and even right. when I'm around my you know when I was around my like younger niece or nephew I still did not give a flying 
F. You just said it. But you now, it. but now you got me uh, thinking maybe I shouldn't curse on this podcast. Uh, no, you can say say whatever you want. Uh, great. Let's just get them out of the way like it's a we warm up. We want the full Lucas. Piss, shit, cocksucker, motherfucker, asshole, tits. <laughs> Let's just get them out. Let's do great. It. They're out. They're out. Stinky poo poos. Stinky yeah, poo poops. Thank you. Stinky poo poo is. See, here's the thing. Stinky poo poo is as as um, innocuous as that sounds. Yeah. That can only be construed as to refer to a dirty thing. Whereas mm-hmm. fuck is such a versatile word, and bitch right. can mean many things, and mm-hmm. shit can even mean it. But there's that's the that's the irony of it because when you yeah. say stinky poop poop, no one says stinky poop poop to mean anything other than a reference to stinky <laughs> poop poop. So that to me is a more disgusting offensive thing to yeah. say. No than, one gets off the know, roller coaster at six flags and goes, that was stinky poop poop. Although now that you say it, that sounds fucking fucking yeah, right? hilarious. Right? Yo man, that shit was stinky poop poop, son. Like that <laughs> you could totally do that. That would be completely funny. Oh my god, I hope in six months this is everywhere. <laughs> I really hope. That would be so great. Um, yeah, that new Drake he dropped last night was real stinky poo-poo. Well, if you if you remember, actually, there was, I think it was maybe two years ago, um, when Kanye West was in the middle of his mental breakdown, he yeah. released a demo, but the only lyrics were, uh, scoopity-poo-poo, poopity-scoop-poo-poo. <laughs> and, it, and it was, a, it was as the kids would say, it, I, it slapped, it's and like- it was a banger. It was mm. a bop. It was a bop. Wow. So Stinky was... Poop Poop could totally... You put Stinky Poop Poop in the right black man's hand, that becomes culturally <laughs> significant. That's all it takes. Yeah. All it takes is the right man of color. The right man of color. That's a good title. The right man of color? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that sounds borderline. It all depends who's writing the book. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's, that's important. If Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote The Right Man of Color, I'm like, that's a, yes, I'm, I'm yep. down for that book. Yeah, that but would be Stinky know, Poop Poops. That would be Stinky Poop Poop. If Ann Coulter wrote The Right Man of Color, I'd be like, uh-oh, nope. no, no. Mm-mm. Then that's a different kind of Stinky that's Poop Poop. That, that stinks, Poop Poop. So can we just start by asking how you got into improv? Um, I knew of the UCB theater, but I never went to the old one. Like Ooh. I didn't actually go see any comedy stuff. Like old, I old, like the one on Twenty Second Street, right? Um, I but I knew of it, and I knew because I knew the TV show on Comedy Central. Right. Um, but I ne- I didn't go to a show at the theater until like two thousand seven because a good friend of mine went to college with Aziz, Jeez. and um, they had him and his that group they had um. I want to say Human Giant was the name of it. Yeah, Human Giant was the, was yes, but he was also in. Wasn't he in the Hammercats? That was Donald Glover. That was Donald Glover. Yeah, they weren't together on anything. I don't think they ever did anything together. And but yet, did Aziz go to NYU? I could just go. Aziz, Aziz went well, to NYU, as did my friend. I did okay. not go to NYU. I went to St. John's University. I just assumed because he went to NYU that he was in Hammercats. Um, I mean that's a good assumption. Uh, yeah, I mean, and they Donald were around Glover the same was. time. They yeah, were, I Don, think they're the exact same age. Yeah, and Donald Glover was in Derek, which mm-hmm. was a three-man group, and then there was Human Giant, which was another three-man group at the same time. Yes, and Human Giant did this thing at MTV where they took over, they did like a 24-hour takeover, 
Yeah. And I literally, I remember my friend, because of through Aziz, got a ticket to be in that. And I was like, if you can hold a seat for me, I will literally leave my job right now and come down, I guess come up. My my office was like 23rd in, or, or in Tribeca somewhere. And I literally was like, I told my boss, I was like, I need to step out for, for lunch. And I just never came back. And I Brilliant. went I went to uh, 1515 Broadway and spent the next like 18 hours. Um, and, and the reason why this is relevant is because after they were done, they said, we're doing like a, a wrap-up show at UCB. And that was the first time I ever went to that theater. Oh. Um, was you know after who, that. Um, you know who played the MTV executive in the opening sketch of that? Mr. I... Matt Higgins of Central. Oh, no shit. Yeah, he lost See? That That's thing. amazing. Yeah. They, I rem- a Herald. There was a Life is a Herald. Um, the, the question always is, if Life's a Herald, you always got to know what beat you're in. Because mm. my goodness... A lot of us act like we're in our first and second beats, and we don't know. No, this show's about to wrap up, friend. <laughs> and you're like, oh. Yeah, look at the clock. Yeah, you better start making connections now because, hey. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, so I should back up, and okay. and I want to get your whole history. Great. Um, from, from the moment you were born. No, so that what did you study in school? Let's start there. What, what did you come to New York to study? Okay, so let's, we got to do, I got to also do a little bit of backing up. I yeah. wanted to come to New York City to study law. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted right. to be Johnny fucking Cochran. All right. Mm-hmm. And so, but, so I always wanted to go to NYU. That was my dream. Mostly because uh, when I grew up watching the real world on MTV, mm-hmm. uh, the the year that they were in New York, mm-hmm. one of the girls was like, I go to NYU. And I was like, sold. I'm in. I want to go there. And so mm-hmm. for like 10 years, I wanted to go there. But I wasn't a really great student. And my SAT scores were not good. Uh, hmm. Great at verbal. I'm going to talk like Donald Trump a little bit. Great at verbal. Terrible <laughs> at math. I don't do numbers. I don't do numbers. Words. I do words. The best words. I got all the best words. Can't do numbers. Um, That's but yeah, good. I uh, shitty at math. And so I didn't get in NYU. The reason I, I about so my, uh, what's it called? Fallback school or backup school was St. John's. I don't know. The, I don't know what you call it. Yes, Fall one back. of those terms. Fallback. Second. And and second I, choice. I, it was definitely yeah, it was definitely my second choice. Um and the only reason I knew of St. John's was because they had they were the first college basketball team to have the Jordan brand on their jerseys. Mm. And I just thought that was so cool. So I was like, yeah, fuck it. It's in New York. And that's the only yeah. school I got into. So I was like, fuck. So I moved to New York to go to school thinking I would study law, but so when I started taking criminal justice courses. Um, at St. John's criminal justice courses are trying to, are geared towards being a cop. And yes, I did not want to do that. I was like, this is not at all where I want to go. So I switched into journalism because I was like, well, I like the truth and I like telling stories. So let's get into journalism. Hated all of my teachers because mm. again, it's a very, it's a, it's a low key. I'm super liberal. I'm a gay black Jew. So <laughs> I'm pretty liberal. And this mm-hmm. school is super conservative. And yeah. so all of the teachers were like writers for the New York Post. And I was like, what? Fuck this. So then I fell into what became so my their major. Cl- their classes were like, when something happens, this is how you twist it. Exactly. To fit and, and, your narrative. <laughs> exactly. Everything was, I, 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 my two roommates at the time 
both wrote for the paper. It was called The Torch, which I thought was a was the only clever thing about that place. About mm-hmm. and and the battles that they used to get into with the administration over the stories they wanted to cover were so hilarious to me, especially my one roommate who was, you know, all this, he was very Bernstein-esque of like, the the truth and all this. And I was like, you know, if you really cared about these stories, you don't need the paper to write them. Just hmm. publish them your fucking self on like a live journal or something. And he was like, but that's not the real, and I was like, bro, you just want to be, Anyway, I called him out and I and I got in a huge fight. But philosophy is what I settled on. <laughs> so this fight led you to change your major? It, it led me to change my major because the fight I had was with my my two roommates. One was a journalism major, the other was a philosophy major, and he was telling me about what they what the classes and all that. And I was like, man, I I I could do that. And I bet there's no other black people in the philosophy department at St. John's University, and there weren't. Mm. And so I did that, and I immediately was like, oh, my God, this is what I've always wanted to do. This is, um, this is, this is why I was always attracted to law anyway, because it's not the it, – it's the performance of an argument. It's making a case. Mm. It's stating mm-hmm. a premise, and you see where I'm, I'm laying a foundation, if you will, to, mm-hmm. to what that we will get to later when we talk about improv. Mm-hmm. But it's establishing a premise – and laying the foundation and of all the the ways that you are proving this premise, and then you deliver your your closing argument. That's all philosophy is is a, it's science without the experiments. It's science mm. with just the thoughts, um, which to me was great because I didn't want to do math and I didn't want to <laughs> burn myself in a laboratory. But I had some ideas and yeah. no bullshit, no bullshit. Who doesn't want to wear a, a toga? Exactly. Titan, I would Greek love toga. to walk around like that. Yeah, walk around the Acropolis. Although I think you'd probably prefer to walk around, you know, Cambridge in a tweed jacket with patches on the elbow like Bertrand Russell. I, you know what? Damn. Okay, we went straight to the Brits. I was going to start with <laughs> start with the German idealists first and work oh, our way okay. up to the British. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yes. I mean, the city that I want to go to is Vienna. That mm. would be my... Uh, because mostly because the Aristotelians and the Plato, the Plato and Socrates and all of them, the Athenians, mm-hmm. that's like heady shit. Like they're they're laying the groundwork of just what's knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's, what is beauty? What is beauty? And all what of that stuff truth? is important. What's that young man's name over there? Yeah, who is that? And and bring him over. Bring him closer. Hi, sir. Drop your trowel. You're like because you know they were also. Yeah. They were Weirdly. Greek. They were they were Greek, um, but there's something about the 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 what was going on in Vienna in the 1800s that where thoughts became practices, hmm. and for not always good practices in the 1930s. Whoops. Um, oh boy. But like that was that interests me in the, in the it was the first time that you started seeing people generating ideas that they then said, we need to actually put these ideas as into uh, actionable laws and whatnot. Hmm. Uh, Who are we talking about? Is it Wittgenstein? I mean, before Wittgenstein, uh, I guess uh, Kant was like in the 1700s, and he's not Viennese. I think he's Prussian. Um, Mm -hmm. But like Immanuel Kant is like the beginning of these people being like, no, we need to create a series of what 
what are the obligations and the duties that we can derive mm -hmm. as thinking beings? And then we have to do them. We have to actually make that the law. Mm. Again, the irony is, again, I wanted to be able to see it's all mixed up. Uh, I wanted to, st I started wanting to do rules and then I was like, but what are rules? Right. And that's mm -hmm. what got me in, interested in philosophy. And that, and then I realized everything is just rule based. Everything I do, everything we love is rules. What are the rules mm -hmm. of music? What are the rules mm -hmm. of comedy? What are the rules? Yeah. Just rules, follow, uh, finding and establishing rules. And yeah. that, I guess that goes all the way back. Um, yeah, it goes all the way back. It goes all the way back. I guess I just don't want to go to Greece, man. Chill. Like, I, just, I, just, I, just, I don't want to see a bunch of bu busted down buildings. I want to see buildings that are still standing. Yeah, it's true. They have been busted down. Um, so how how did you, like, did you grow up loving comedy? Like, when did you discover comedy? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I don't have like a, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus moment. Mm -hmm. um, these references, I've never sounded smarter in my life. Um, you sound smart all the time. Thank you, fishing. Um, <laughs> and I would say the earliest I remember is watching, it's funny because I actually was watching a documentary literally last night about the early days of Nickelodeon. And I think that's what did it is I hmm. saw you can't do that on television mm -hmm. and it was kids who were being who were the stars of the show? That's and the I, slime show. That's the that's what gave us slime, the slime mm -hmm. concept. And when I saw these young kids who were older than me, because I would have been like five or six, and they would have been like in their preteens. Mm -hmm. So a preteen to a six-year-old is an adult, and yeah. to and still yet a kid, and to see them having fun and telling jokes and being silly, I was just like, I want to do that. Yeah, because I was always running around my house anyway. And just pretending I was other places, which now that I look back on, I was just doing a one-man herald every day in my fucking living room. While my, guess what? To the same amount of an audience as many nights that I did at the so it's like, Yeah, so it's familiar. It's a familiar it was very feeling. familiar. Very familiar. Um, but when, like, did you ever think when you were that young that, like, oh, I could do that? for a living or did you that to... that didn't happen until so there were two things that happened in my life that told me oh there's a job here one yeah. a local weatherman named dan woods uh he was the cbs affiliate in sacramento wanted to do a kids show and i don't know how the fuck my dad uh uh knew this guy or how he found out about this but um somehow he threw my name in the ring you know what? I think it was okay. I had I, I I was in a commercial for uh uh what was his name? Pete Wilson, the gov the former governor of California. Mm -hmm. In his I was like the token black kid in his re-election campaign video. I have no mm -hmm. idea if this exists anywhere. I've never seen it. Wouldn't that be great to find? Um, yeah. And I think from there, the uh, the news guy was like, "Well, I'm doing a I want to do a kids show, and I need like some kids to kind of do like a pilot." And so, I. I remember going to this school and he was just like, Lucas, lead the kids in games. And I was like, what do you want me to do? And he was like, I don't know. Just make it up. And I know bullshit. Right now talking about this, I'm realizing, holy fuck, I was improvising. As a, I was told to do improv 
for free, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> How do you get paid? So that's what really kickstarted my understanding of this business. Uh, do some free comedy for me, boy. And like, so that's what I was doing. And so that was one. And then two, my uncle wrote for In Living Color, which was my favorite oh. show at the time. Oh, and my so, God. And so those oh my two God. things. Hold yeah, those, on a second. Those two things Hold came on. together. I'm sorry. That's amazing. That's amazing. Like, so you knew someone in your personal life who yes. made their living being funny and not just funny, like being on the funniest show ever. Right. Culturally significant, hugely popular show. Yes. Not doing improv in someone's basement. No. But getting actually doing paid for money to put words into the mouths of Damon Wayans and Jim Carrey and Jamie Foxx, Tommy Davidson. David Allen Greer. David Allen Greer. Oh, my God. Um, that's when I was like, whoa. But I never, like, I never told my parents, like, this is what I want to do. Like, let's go be children's, a child star. Like, I never you, did that. But you knew your uncle? Like, you, he was vaguely. in your life? At, at okay. that time, it was vague. I, I'm much more, I'm close to him now because I live in L.A. And yeah. that's where he lived. But, like, you know, I was vaguely... Uh, related, if you will, because he's my dad's youngest brother. There's like okay. a there's like a twenty year gap between them, or something like that. Okay. So then, but but then you you didn't pursue it. I so did not pursue it. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a philosopher. Yeah. Then, so was it going to this UCB show after the whole twenty four hour takeover of MTV that you were like, now I'm going to do it, or had you been already putting your foot in the water? Are you are you ready for this? This sounds I'm like I'm making it. this up. I swear to God, this is true. I was backstage because I had to go to the bathroom, right? In between bits, they let you go to the bathroom. And so you're walking through the mm -hmm. offices of MTV to get to their, their bathroom. Mm -hmm. And as I came back, I will never forget Rob Riggle was standing backstage waiting to go on for one of his crazy bits. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, comedy, get into it. Really? Un unprovoked. I, I, he just this funny guy turned to me and was just like can you believe this is what i'm doing for a living i'm playing with my friends we're in our late 20s early 30s i'm getting paid money to goof off and do funny characters and mtv is paying for this comedy get into it wow. and i was like what the fuck and after going to ucb and just kind of realizing like these are just normal people there's nothing you know, once you have the the once you have the mystique of the people on the TV mm -hmm. being in real life, you realize mm -hmm. this is just people. Like yeah. my freshman year of college, again, remember I told you this was a conservative college. Ken Starr came to talk oh, to the Jesus law students. Christ. Oh my God! And this was what three years after. So two thousand one was like three years after the whole impeachment bullshit. And yeah. I remember standing outside uh, in outside of the, the room where he gave this very good speech, by the way, very good. Like this was back when, you know, at 18, I was like flirting with being all sorts of political philosophies. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I was like how Michael J. Fox rebe rebels against his hippie parents by becoming, you know, super Reagan, Reagan, uh, Reaganite in, um, mm -hmm family ties i was flirting with yeah. that so i was like "Ooh, maybe the republicans were right we do need to bring dignity back to the office little did i know <laughs> holy shit these people are the most indignified <laughs> people ever um yeah. but seeing ken star 
in the flesh, uh, a, a handshake away made me go, ew, you're just a guy. Yeah. So I was just like, okay. So then pair that with the comedians of like, oh, you're just people. So I, you know, I told my friend that I wanted to start taking, who I knew, I had another friend who was already doing improv all around town. And he was like, well, if you ever want to give it a shot, there's a, a theater that does these like weekend jams. You go in and you make the goofies. You do some goofy stuff. Mm-hmm. And I would go to a bunch of his shows as well. He did more short form um, stuff. Mm-hmm. And the the woman who ran like his troupe was a former groundling. So it was like half short form, half long form. And I really, uh, her name is Holly Mandel. She she was kind of like the New York ambassador of Groundlings. Like I think she was, she came out here and tried to like start a Groundlings-esque uh, troupe. My, bu- my buddy kind of introduced me to all of this. And I, uh, I did jams at the Magnet Theater mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. You know, zip, zap, zap, all that shit. I was like, this is fun. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Um, but I got on stage. Sometimes you'd get a chuckle. Sometimes you're like, I don't, you know, you were, you're, when you don't know really the rules of improv, you kind of just rely on things you've seen from, you know, references from movies and TV shows. And you kind of do voices that Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy would have done. Oh, Which, yeah, yeah. by the way, one of the first rules I would teach someone is that's good improv. <laughs> it's just yeah. steal steal from your entire bank of memories. It's going to, well, at Second City, there's one thing we always said. That you could do other people's characters as long as you filtered it through yourself. Like you do your own variation. Bingo. That's you know? br- That's brilliant. Yeah. Until you found it. Because we're all playing the same kind of archetypes anyway. Exactly. Which reminds me of a class that you uh, led that I can't wait to speak about when that comes up organically. Um, Because, (laughs) no, because I for real have so, that, you don't have any idea how important that class was to me. Um, And it was, it wasn't really like an official class. It was more like a workshop that Mm -hmm. we did. This was, this was a class you were kind of, we were trying to do more of like an improvised theatrical experience. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it. Yeah. The, you, there was an exercise that you introduced us to that literally blew my mind and has to this day been the most instrumental thing for me as both a performer, a writer mm-hmm. and everything. Like and- that's the, the exercise where I tell people to watch a stand up special and steal the best jokes. I, yeah, I mean, there it is. On stage. Once, once you introduced me to Delirious, I was yep. just like, "This man knows his stuff." Yep, um, and it was on VHS, so you know it you was you have legit. to watch the original graininess of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I'll get back to that uh, to what that was. Uh, but I remember one day after the magnet, we let out, and it was like, "Hey, do you want to go get a bite to eat?" And I think we were like, "Yeah, let's go to Shake Shack." It's a quick little walk from you know to the Madison Square Park. Um, a walk that I, because of the 24th street pit, I cannot tell you how many fucking miles I logged going back Mm -hmm. and forth between those two. Um, Mm -hmm. but if you remember the geography, if you're walking eastward on 29th street Mm -hmm. from the magnet, you will pass the people's improv theater. They were a block apart. They were a block apart. And on the door, God damn it, Ali, you are a marketing genius. On the door, painted of the front of the thing, it said all the classes you could take. And one of the Mm. classes said, writing for SNL as Mm -hmm. taught by an SNL writer. And I was like, that's what I want. Mm. I want that class. 
And I only said I want that class because the first class that I really wanted was learn how to write a screenplay taught by Michael Showalter, mm-hmm. who I loved from uh, the state and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But the class was sold out. So yeah. I then did the SNL one. And, and he, that, he left the pit to go become a professor at NYU. Oh, there. well, there it is. NYU comes back. Right. They, they're all from NYU, too, I believe. They're the progenitors. Like, they're yeah. the early 90s version of Hammercats. Yeah. Um, That's all true. Who then had a huge show on MTV, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, crazy. It's the same, like, four things. If, I, if there's a lesson... Uh, things might have changed because of COVID. But if there's a lesson to learn from anyone who wants to do improv, it's move to New York, find a group of friends at a theater, pitch a show to MTV. If you, yep. That's it. That's the key to success. Um, my first comedy job where I made my first official dollar doing comedy was writing for a TV show at MTV. So it, it's, wow. it's, it's, it matters like that play awesome. MTV really does matter <laughs> in, yeah. that, in that, re- in comedy. Like it's yeah. a lot of people's first, first jobs is first oh, job yeah. in comedy is at MTV. Yeah. Um, but that's how I got into improv because once I took Ali's class, he, he, you know, we, we learned how to write different sketches and during a break, cause this was when he used to teach in the lobby of the old pit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was, he, off the cuff was like, so what should we do during this break? And I snidely and jokingly said like, you know, oh, maybe we should do zip zabs up. And he was like, oh, do you, you like improv? You do improv? And he was like, well, you know, you're pretty funny. You should, have you ever thought of doing improv? And the whole time I thought this, you know, this very uh, like uh, booming figure in New York City comedy is complimenting you, right? Yeah. And when I then got to know Ali after, you know, half a decade or more of like really working really close with him and teaching at his theater and performing with him and sitting in the office with him. I was like, this motherfucker's upselling me. That's what he yeah. did. <laughs> the motherfucker upsold me to take a class. Yeah. And the joke's on him though, because yeah. I didn't have no fucking money. So he didn't get no, he didn't get a dollar. Yeah, from exactly. Me. Yeah. But I did intern there for like two years. So, and then that's how I became, how I became an improviser is I, I, uh, I, took classes and fucking fell in love with it. And I took it insanely seriously. Very yeah. few things in my life do I have I taken seriously. I like wanted to be good at this and was, I went to classes. I read the books. I was a better student at, at improv than I was a student in college. Like I cared and like read and watched and learned and went to shows and started taking classes at different theaters and with different people. Like I was like, I found my thing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I know that I lived it. Yeah. And not, not everybody does. Um, did you was there a difference between writing and like sketch writing and improv for you, or were they the same thing just through different means? Um, at first they were incredibly different. And I think it was because I wasn't good at improv yet. So mm. improv at the beginning for me was just like just learn how to command two lines because you're not gonna sustain a scene. You suck. You're not good yet. So like, but so just kind of figure out the feel of being on stage in front of people. You're no longer nervous. You you don't give a fuck about if you're funny or not. Just learn that. Because in sketch, I, I'd already been a writer at, to some degree. And remember, my because of my uncle, I've been writing sketches to myself for, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years. So in that yeah. regard, I'd already had an, a comfort level with writing material that was funny. Um but when you perform it out of nothing, that to me felt 
so much harder and 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 different. Ten years later, now I'm like, oh, improv has made me a better writer. Yeah, and so yeah. all of those skills I can. If you if, like, people are shocked, like how quickly I can write a scene for a script of like, if you tell me what you need this scene to be, I got it. I know what they're going to say and I know why they need to say it, how they need to say it, who they need to say it to, who needs to walk in, what fucks something up, what frustrates the, like that I, I learned from doing improv. So yeah. it's, it's full circle. It is a what? weird kind of or- Ouroboros, if you will. Mm-hmm. The snake eating its own tail mm-hmm. for yeah. those unfamiliar. Um, it, you said it. You 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 stucked. Is that was that the word you used? You stank. You were stinky poo poo's at improv. I was I was stinky poo poo. Call back. What got <laughs> What got you through those times? Mm. Like, how did you stick through it and not just retreat to writing, which you already knew you were good at? Um, the fact that I I wanted to get better. Mm. I just I just wanted to get better. And sometimes it it it's the only time in my life. Like I played basketball when I was in high school and I mm-hmm. sucked and I quit because it wasn't worth it. I didn't feel the mm. same fire. Like I didn't care. Basketball was just something fun. I had no illusions about going pro, right? Right. So I wasn't – I didn't – the stakes were so like, ugh, I don't like being yelled at by my coach. Fuck you. I'm not getting that rebound. You see how tall that guy is? That guy's no. taking it seriously. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. <laughs> like, I'm not going – I'm not dragging that asshole up and down the court for fucking yeah. 40 minutes. Get out of here. Um, yeah. So poor, – Poor coach. He probably gets like two guys a decade who are like born to do it. Yeah, and I was not that guy. Yeah. Um, however – the mentality of my favorite basketball players, Kobe Bryant, mm. uh, Michael Jordan, those guys told me, you have, to, you have to treat this thing. When you find that thing that you love, no one's going to stop you from getting better at it. And yeah. I mean, I was obsessive. I was yeah. obsessed with getting better. And you, t- you use anything you can as revenge. And like, I remember doing, like, there was like, I still remember there being kind of like a Cobra Kai, do- uh, Miyagi Dojo vibe between like the pit and UCB, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. sometimes the UCB kids would come over and do like jams at the pit. And like yeah. they would, and the pit kids would be like, oh shit. I remember seeing like, oh, those are badass motherfuckers from UCB. Like, oh shit, <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta be on my A game. And like I would yeah. do a scene that stunk. And I was like, you idiot, you fucking stunk in front of the bad kids from UCB. Mm-hmm. But then yeah. I'd go to UCB and be dope. And they'd be like, how are you so good? It's like, because I do jams every goddamn day. Right. So here's, here's the key. Ready for this? Yeah. People, people like you. Because uh, you do not get good at anything until someone you look up to and respect has given you validation for what you do. Hmm. And when you guys, I remember one of the first like big moments for me was you invited me to do a Centralia show. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, I want to one day do the faculty show on Wednesday. Oh. And then you guys were like, why don't you do this premium show guest on friday and all of my peers at the pit were like no fucking way did you get asked to do that (laughs) and i was like i did and doing it felt like you know being handed a baseball in game seven of the world series and you're a rookie and you're like holy shit i can't fuck this up i've never seen the pit so packed and it was just the most fun and the the key again was great experienced improvisers know how to make your choices look like poems 
And mm-hmm. so I literally, for the first time, felt the freedom of like, oh, this is the difference between good improv and bad improv, is that I can literally do anything and the players around me will treat it like it was the right move versus what I found myself doing all the time with people at my level where it's like I make a move and it the move that that responds to it wasn't very strong. It wasn't very good. I get mad. I can't tell you how many scenes mm. in jams I shot myself in the head, put on a, 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 a rocket pack and flew away. Or like, <laughs> oh, my God, look at that secret door that just emerged. Yeah. Clunk. And I just would yeah. leave. Um, because you don't want to – you know, when you're beginning, the the crash and burn feels like crashing and burning. When you become a when you become confident and you realize, oh my God, a crash and burn is when you actually get to be an Avenger and you get to use your superpowers to like stop it from being a crash and burn. It's far more fun yeah. now. Sometimes I've, I've you know back when I was doing improv, it's far rare now. Um, sometimes I would purposely tank moments. Really? Just to, I would, I would detonate little bombs just to see if we had the, who had the fucking balls to fucking, or breasts, brains. Mm. Let's say brains. Who had brains. the brains? Let's say brains. Yes. Let's say brains. Who had the brains to like get us out of this? And yeah. sometimes I would see people get us out of it, and they would do it with just as much, you know, throwing the punch back at me. And I was like, now that's, I respect that person mm-hmm. because they took my choice, used it, and also made it even better. So that yeah. I was like that. Um, that's when I re- I first started going. That makes me feel good. I started getting the validation of teachers. I started getting the validation of elder performers. I got put onto a house team mm. that kicked my ass. These what, motherfuckers. What was the name of that? What was the, the name of that the, team? The team was Stranger. We were called Stranger, mm-hmm. and literally everyone on that team had been on like at least two other teams. And we had one dude who was fresh off of Chicago. He used to do shit with um, Thomas Middleditch and like he was a rock star, came Mm -hmm. over. um, And then it was just, it was a bunch of fucking killers. And then me. And I was like, uh, what? And every day in practice, I was being talked over. I was, my choices weren't being honored. I was being made fun Mm. of in the scenes. And it opened the competitiveness in me where I was like, not anymore. Like my first, first show I didn't say a single fucking line. Hmm. I walked out and just was like, oh my God, I'm not ready for this. And by the end, they'll tell you, by the end of that year, shutting me up was maybe the hardest (laughs) thing to do. (laughs) That's awesome. That's really great to hear. What, uh, same question then. So once you get on a house team, is it the same answer? You still wanted it and you wanted to get good at it? Or had that changed? Did you want to prove to everyone else that you already were good? I wanted to do both. I wanted to prove that I could handle myself with these killers and also be better and get better. I wanted to be better than them. I wanted to look at them the same way they the same way they looked down at me on my first day. I wanted to look back at them, down on them my last day. So my last wow. day on that team, I was like, I want to look at you the same way you motherfuckers made me feel small when I first started. And That's- I mean, no. it's funny you, you you didn't stick with basketball. Not that I know anything about sports, but that to me seems like a real athletic, competitive. Oh, I'm the mindset. worst. I'm the worst. That's the thing. <laughs> or the that, best. I mean, I mean you need maybe that drive. The thing that bothers me so much is see the thing about sports is sports is not subjective. If right. you you throw the ball in the air, 
it either goes in the hole or it doesn't. And if right. you're the guy that can put the ball in the hole more times than the other kid, you have talent. I mm-hmm. had talent in the sense that if I was shooting hoops with my dad in the backyard, I could I could keep up. I was a, I had a good shot. But now all of a sudden, if that's all you've been practicing is shooting against your dad, like you're not going to that's not making you game ready. I was right. like all this running and I was like, and wait a second, I have to memorize plays? And this yeah. big dude sets a pick on me? Oh, no, 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 no. This is not for me. I don't oh, like this. running? Yeah, yeah, I don't like this running. And then the, there so was funny. weight There was weight training. I still remember. Yeah. I had to, I, I couldn't lift, and I still can't. I couldn't lift the bar. Just the bar. Fuck just the bar the by itself. The bar by itself, I had trouble lifting. And they made fun of me. And again, why didn't my attitude kick in and be like, I'm going to lift until I'm yeah. better than them. And yeah. the re- the difference between me and my competitiveness is I'm only competitive when the end goal is something I genuinely want. Hmm. I do not want a six pack and, and all that. I don't care about that. Right. I did, uh, by the way, however, remember those old strength shoes that Spud Webb used to sell uh, <laughs> back in like the early 90s? Yeah. Do you remember those those elevated shoes? Yeah. My dad yeah. bought like the first so run funny. version of those, and I was like, I want to try these out. And he was like, Why? And he was like, Because I want to I want to dunk the basketball. In yeah. in at lunch, I want to dunk because I've seen at lunch if you dunk a basketball, you you get to kind of be part of the the crew, and so that's what I wanted. I wanted to be part of the crew because the crew was talking shit, which is really what I wanted because they were being funny. So that's the only reason why basketball was important to me is because I wanted to get in with the funny kids. Those fucking right. – every school right. has the stereotypical group of black kids who talk shit and are mm-hmm. fucking funny. And yeah. the key to getting in was I had to dunk a basketball. And in order mm. to do that, I had to work on these strength shoes for like three months. Also, <laughs> the another thing – do you remember the game Final Fantasy VII? I have not played Final Fantasy VII. Okay. I have not played any Final Fantasy. I have never, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't. I don't think you should be embarrassed. I did not play Final Fantasy 1 through 6, nor did I play okay. 8 through a million. I don't even know how yeah. many there are. But for some reason, I played this, and I wanted this magic spell called Knights of the Round Table. And the mm-hmm. only way you could get it was that you had to find a way to get to this small island on the world map. And the only way you could get to this island was you had to have a gold Chocobo that would run across the water and get you there. But to get a gold Chocobo, you had to win Chocobo races and literally raise an egg of a first-level Chocobo all the way up to gold. I spent three months raising a goddamn gold Chocobo every day like I was mining Chinese gold in Minecraft. And Mm. I got it all because I wanted this thing. So meaning if I want something, I will fight to the goddamn end to have it, but I just don't want that many things. Like right. I don't want to play basketball like right. Michael Jordan. What I do want is I do want to sell one of these goddamn shows that I've been sitting on and t- pitching and that. So that, if you if you saw me talk about like TV writing or like getting a job in or selling a show or pitching a show, that's, that, that's when you're, it's like, uh-oh, Luke, there it is. Yeah, it's... It's the intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. And to be motivated, like for me as an artist, it's all intrinsic. It's like, I just want to see this vision come yes. to life. But when it becomes about 
extrinsic. Someone else has to like it, or I have to please someone else, or I have to package my idea to fit someone else's goals. I'm no longer motivated at all. And here's the here's the trick, because you are 100% right, and I love that dichotomy. I think that is 100% it. I The thing that taught me how to play that game a little bit better. I mean, I'm not like sitting in a fucking palace right now. I'm still sitting in a pretty shitty apartment. But like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not on the street, which is where I could have been 10 years ago. Um, I have the coin. I just don't have the trappings. But the trick is if you, if the intrinsic part of you wants to be the person who knows deep down my philosophy of what's funny and what is good television is right. Hmm. I will package this garbage to all of your specific fucking cations, and that gives me intrinsic pleasure to know that I've figured out how to play the game. Hmm. Just like with like, and that and I, I'm funny I said that because that's how I felt at UCB. You have to yeah. in order. You have to learn. The reason I never made a house team on those on those things is I wasn't very good at doing heralds in their style. Because I wasn't very good at playing game. I was always more interested in like, what do you do if you're on stage and you don't like the game you're playing? Yeah. I always like the pit and Centralia style. Like, just do something else. Like, exactly. Just, just do something you don't you want to do. Like, None of this matters. None of anyway. it matters. Exactly. <laughs> Who am I performing for? Am I performing yeah. for just what's the funniest thing? Like Matt Oberg taught me that. Not directly, but I learned this watching him. Yeah. I someone once said of him. That if you watch him interacting with performers doing like a herald, he's not interested in playing the game where nope. in the sense of like, what's the game of this scene? Oh, well, he's a, a, a bartender who serves monsters. <laughs> this monster bar. No, he was like, what's the funniest thing I could do right now? Yep. Given the circumstances around me. And he would, that's a completely different philosophy of comedy. And that's also a very dangerous one to play with because you don't necessarily know what he's going to do. But there is another philosophy of comedy that says, isn't that more fun? Isn't that improv when you don't know what someone's going to do, but you're ready for it? Right. Well, Matt Oberg is a, is a special case. Yes, he is. He did not go through any classes. Um, he, he took one Centralia workshop, like a two-day workshop. And that's the only improv class he's had. Wow. And he has said, and it's everything with him is sort of ironic, but he said his philosophy of improv or his strategy is think of the funniest thing he could say or do and then say or do that. Yeah. And he's a special case because he's incredibly funny. Yeah. And that gives you a certain license because there's a, there's a lie in improv that it isn't about entertainment or it isn't about being funny. And I, and I know that there's, it's not a hundred percent funny and it's not a hundred percent art either way. It's, it, there's, there's definitely a mix and each theater is going to split up. Is it 60% one, 40% other, whatever, you know, they have their own particular flavor, but all of them require humor and some level of entertainment. Yes, absolutely. And they pay lip service, you know, the, but really at the heart, I think at the center of it. If you're going to invite an audience, there has to be some entertainment. Absolutely. Some absolutely. I, I never understood why some certain teachers at certain schools would try and be like, you're trying to be funny. And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm paying you hundreds of dollars to teach Yeah, you. I'm here to be. Well, <laughs> right? it's, it's, that rule is for people who try to be funny, but then 
aren't then aren't funny yes but then the, right. then the, then the teacher this is when i started becoming a teacher i mean i didn't it was certainly not something i wanted to do long term but i wanted mm-hmm. to to achieve that that level because when you start teaching you become a better improviser because you're telling totally. other people how to improvise it's like well then you need to start totally. doing that too and you yeah. start developing a, a philosophy yourself i had to figure out what it was that i did that made me successful because exactly. I didn't follow any formula or have any sort of plan. I knew the rules, yes and, whatever that meant. But literally teaching, I had to sit down and say, well, how did I make that choice in that show last Saturday? Because students would ask, you know, how did you get to that place? And I would have to figure it out. Here's a metaphor that just popped into my head. I feel like I am um, at my best, right, on stage. I'm John Henry. And there is a train coming down the goddamn track and I have to build the track before the train gets there. Mm-hmm. That's how I view improv is that I need your job because the train is the show, right? right. This, is, this is what's happening. This is what the yeah. audience is seeing. Yeah. And if you don't have track for this train to, to roll over, it's going to crash and you will burn, right? Yeah. So my mindset is always, okay, knowing ev- you know all these rules you know all these this concepts of characters and premise and relationship and you know all this this stuff and you know about how to do a funny voice you know what works your job is to just lay down tracks in accordance with the terrain that you encounter like oh no there's a mountain i got to build up oh no there's yeah. a river i got to build over like right. and your job is to lay track and sometimes laying track means you just have to be riding on your feet faster mm-hmm. than the train so it's almost like you're still writing it's just you're 100%. writing in the moment yeah. and you're making decisions at the same time that you had the idea to make the decision totally and it's it's interesting because earlier you were you were talking about how you liked to fight your way out of terrible sets and that sometimes you would trash a set to make you know mm-hmm. to give yourself that fight and i wonder if because that metaphor is great that i feel that way I don't know what if my metaphor is a train. I got to think about that. I'm not trying to invalidate the train metaphor. I only I'm made saying. it because John Henry is one of the few African American superheroes in the American <laughs> mythos, and that's how that's how mm-hmm. far and few between they are. The nigga right. was building a train. Like that's how we had to go that far back. Right, too. and then there was a gap until Black Lightning in the city. Exactly. It's like goodish. Um. So, <laughs> no, my point was. I am addicted to that feeling, that dangerous feeling of this train is on a trellis bridge. Is that what that kind of bridge is called? You know, a, a, a wooden bridge and it oh, might fall yes, off. Yes. I love that feeling. And I love when, this is maybe why I always do no form, you know, no Harold or anything, is sure. that feeling of like, this could fall apart at any second, even 35 minutes into a great set. Oh, yeah. This could all fall apart, and there's a certain addictive thrill to that feeling that I don't get anywhere else. It's incredibly dangerous while being completely safe, because the worst thing that's going to happen is people leave and go, that wasn't great. Of course. Yeah. I have I created the um, a safeguard for this. This is my fallback. Ready? Yep. I go into every improv show knowing that no matter how bad it gets— and I'm only making this reference to this movie because I literally just watched this movie for the first time about two weeks ago, not mm-hmm. realizing that the tenants of this movie have been with me for my entire life. And that is, do you know, you know the animated movie Akira? I do know it. 
um, the third act of that movie mm-hmm. is so insane, mm-hmm. but it is the unifying principle that that entire very hard to sit through first and second act are. Mm-hmm. And I learned at a really, maybe about like three or four years in, I love, I, I, I love the big idea, mm-hmm. right? The small ideas are great, but the big idea is the best. And there's no bigger ideas than gods, demons, monsters, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. heavens, kind of like Tony Kushner's third act of Angels in America. Oh, yeah. Get these people into heaven to have the big conversation. Mm-hmm. And once I learned that any herald or any show can get surreal and abstract just like that, I felt taken care of because mm. I knew my brain could – I could walk on and be the devil at any fucking moment. Right. And knowing that gave me power, which I learned this, by the way, while I was sitting in the back of the basement of the pit. It was sold out. There was easily 250, 300 people illegally stuffed down there. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Micah Sherman was doing the scene. Oh, yeah. And it was when they were cooking. And mm-hmm. I wasn't asked yet to do that show, and that pissed me off. So I already had a chip on my shoulder. Um, and I sat in the back, and I was stoned out of my mind. And for some reason, I convinced myself that I was a king who was sitting amongst the groundlings watching this show, and the only person who had more power than me was the person st- sitting behind me. Do you know who the person sitting behind me was? Who was that? It was... Uh, Christine Pinn in the tech booth. And and I realized the only person who has more power than me right now is the person who controls the lights on, lights off. She determines when this is all over. She yeah. could she could fucking press the the fucking thing 10 minutes in and everyone would be like I guess that's our show. And when I learned that and realized that cuz you know I'm stoned out of my mind, so I'm yeah. put I'm putting this into if I'm the king, she's god. Once right. I learned that, I was like, oh, Lucas, you are never lost on stage. Just make it about God. Mm. Just make just make this – every, and that's also what ended up being lost. The show Lost used, took my advice before I ever could really implement it. Just, the show was going off the rails. And I just said, yeah. make it about two gods. And it, it always works. Because never if you fails. can make it, it never fails. If you make any show you're doing be a conversation about good and evil, you will always win because that's every story. And once I it learned is. that, I was like, I'm taken care of. I never and we feel, have to you know. keep we have to keep telling ourselves those stories because we're still fighting the good versus evil battle in real life over and over and over again. Th- that to me sounds like, you know, your philosophy background. Yes. Having a space to play. Is there other like are you political? Is there any other stuff? In your am, life, am I political? That you put, I know you're political. That you put into the work, like, do do you get political, or is there other I, stuff? So here's my the thing with politics for me is this: I do not, other than you know, life or death, I do not give a shit about who gets what, who wins, who loses, until it's like a existential threat, like the last four years of our lives. Um, yeah. I'm, I've now become more fascinated, which is so ironic considering I studied journalism and for a little bit. I'm more interested in how the news covers, like the words they use, the words yeah. they choose, the images yeah. they use. Like we're, in the mid, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and it's, we're, we still haven't gotten our, our fucking stimulus checks, right? 
Right. And that's and we're 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 still confirming um, an, a, a Department of Justice head who is essentially telling the Republican Party, I'm going to prosecute white supremacy, which mm -hmm. is your base. Yeah. I'm going to put the Republican Party on trial. And what is the news talking about all day? Tiger Woods got into a car accident. Yeah. And I'm like, I get that. Because Tiger Woods does mean more to us. He's a bigger figure. And that life or death kind of ballet is such a mythology. It's Shakespearean. It's ancient. Right. right. But that's, that is where I am politically in that I just wish we talked about what's going on honestly instead do you, of and but you know, do you put that in the work if you're if you're doing a herald and you get to the third beat oh my god yes oh yes i would say that politics is beat is the second beat because the first beat is real life try to be mm -hmm. as real life as possible um i'll do i'll do three beats of a herald right here of just one track the a scenes ready mm -hmm. um give me a word a word any word doesn't matter oh any word let's say sluggish sluggish it's it's a, a husband and a wife are sitting in the in the living room of their house and the dad's just like look honey i know i said i'd take out the garbage but i can't i'm i'm enraptured by what's going on in the news i cannot take care of anything wife's like i would understand if that was just one day's worth of garbage nigga we got look at the garbage just the whole house is covered in garbage you haven't taken out garbage for 10 days for 10 weeks right we get that yeah beat number 2 now we go political now it's the politicians who aren't taking out the garbage. Hmm. You told, you ran and you got elected saying that you would take out the garbage, that these politicians running amok, you would get rid of them. Why haven't you gotten rid of them? Because, man, I'm watching this TV show about uh, Game of Thrones. There's a dragon and I'm, I, I can't focus on, on all this politics right now. I'm trying to figure out who the fuck going to get the throne. Beat three, who gets the throne? And what is the throne, what is Game of Thrones talking about? It's the same situation. I'm getting rid of the Lannisters. They're garbage. But you didn't get rid of the Lannisters. You just became new garbage and mm. seen. And and so that's how I would use that. It, yeah, it's, that's it's, political. That's philosophical. Exactly. Big questions. Big answers. I, I want to see this set you just, you just improvised. I mean, a it's, minute and a half. it's all the same, though. It's yeah. that, which is the beauty of it is like a good, every good herald should just be the same thing. Normal first beats, heightened, elevated second beats, and insane Akira level monsters and gods yeah. battling out the issues of the day in the heavens at the top of Mount Olympus. Like that's what it should all be. That also describes a simple structure of starting sort of domestic and working your way towards the extraordinary regardless of Harold and, and, and beats. Do you think that's necessary for like the audience to be taken in with yes. the familiar towards something crazy or can you start crazy? You, you can start crazy, but you have to get familiar. If okay. you start familiar, you better get unfamiliar real fast or else it gets boring. Cause they know it. I know familiar. Right. I don't want to watch this. I want unfamiliar. But if you mm. give unfamiliar, they, they go, I don't know how to wear, I don't know how to get my bearings. What is this? Right. So it's both. You have to be able to be aware of both. And I love that you said domestic because what that made me go is, oh, there's the perfect labeling for the two for the three beats. Domestic, royal, 
and then the third would be either spiritual. spiritual. It's like it's it's the realm of everyday people, the realm of extraordinary people, the realm of supernatural people. Like there you go. That's and to me, that philosophy is every good story. Like you name a movie right now that is widely considered good, and I guarantee you that's the structure that they used. That three, those three beats. Name any movie. Tenet. I mean, Tenet. I've, I intentionally no. picked something that would be challenging. Tenet's not challenging at all. Tenet begins. <gasps> the time you're traveling. Making feel, you're on. making me feel stupid. No, no. The time traveling is insane. Believe me. Yeah. I, I meant yeah. that perfectly fits the, the thing. Because yeah. the guy starts off just being a normal CIA agent who's doing a normal job. That's right. his job. Stop this bomb from going off. That's yeah. domestic. He then realizes, no, there's this billionaire who is in, who is plotting something and you have to go into the world of billionaires in order to, you have to meet up with this Indian woman who's a billionaire. You have to meet up with this Russian dude who's a billionaire and you need to figure out what's going on up top. He literally yeah. meets with Michael Caine. That's, that's the second act, all these royals. What's the third act? gods because these people are manipulating time so much that they don't they don't even exist anymore they, they're they're in they're like immortals there's millions of them running around they're fixing their own problems because there's one of them here there's one of me 10 minutes from now so that movie follows that same exact uh it starts domestic it becomes regal and then it becomes supernatural it's the same thing Where, did, did you just make this up where's this coming from because this is the most like concise description of a three-act structure I've heard in quite some time. I have been thinking about this for 37 years. It's just the your word domestic, put it into action, the end. <laughs> That's all it was. I mean, isn't that what we've been... I mean, we've been thinking about the three-act structure for 5,000, 6,000 yeah. years as humans. Yeah. You just need to find your... What words make it clear for you. That's all this is. Right. And that's how you also learn improv. It's the same fucking thing. We all know how to get on stage and goof around. You just need to find what language makes it clear for you to figure out how to do it. And for me, always trying to find a way to make something feel bigger than itself is those are the, that's just because those are the movies that I grew up loving. And I realized, right. wait a second, Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite movie of all time. And, and I'll never forget reading the screenplay of what most people would probably argue is just a dumb horror movie, right? But Wes Craven wrote this line in his screenplay. There's a scene where Nancy has to, she's it's the final nightmare, she's confronting Freddy Krueger. But to get there, she has to walk down these stairs that have magically appeared in her, in her boiler room that lead down to his boiler room. Mm -hmm. And the description in, in the script was, Nancy walks down the stairs like Orpheus descending into hell. And mm. when I read that, that line, I was like, Nightmare on Elm Street is a modern myth. This is, it is a girl who learns there's a monster on the loose and she's the only one who can, like that's ancient. Like, yeah. That's, that's not even new. <laughs> and he's a dream monster, which means yeah. Morpheus. Like, there you go. There's dream monsters in Greek in in Hindi, in Asian, like it's all over the place. So yeah. when so when I realized that that a a nineteen eighty four New Line Cinema B picture about a guy with knives for fingers and a fucking brown hat and a gay Christmas sweater could <laughs> could be 
could could elevate to the level of of Greek myth yeah. was when I, as a kid, six, seven years old, was like, fuck. Like, that's amazing. And it's heavy. And it, it's and heavy that's shit. Stuff, do you feel like that all good works have to, I don't want to use the word pretentious as a pejorative, but the positive version of pretension. Like, do you feel like all good work has to aim high like that? Well, or, or, I would argue that the word pretentious is inherently pejorative if you meet, because it means to pretend. Yeah. So when you're pretending, you're essentially saying you're not something. Yeah. However, a good improviser who is good at pretending should wear pretentiousness as a badge of honor because I'm pretending. And so I guess in film, it's all make-believe, it's all pretend. So in that regard, pretentious is not pejorative because if you're super good at pretending, that means you're good at your job in film. So that's that's a nice little, pulled that one right out of my ass, but I love that. Was that was real good. That was real um, good. I like that. Um, but I think that, I don't think you have, you're obligated to go that way unless the material is begging for it and you do, right. and you choose not to go that way like do all movies need to find the big thing no david lynch lives in the big thing like yeah. and that dude doesn't answer anything yeah. right and he's made a super successful career just being the guy who lives in the big answer and you don't even know what the question is right and some people love that and i would call that pre- i would call that pretentious like when people are like uh, talking about the the new twin peaks i had a friend basically being like yeah but don't you understand that the cockroach is death and, and i'm just like fuck you yeah i'm like i don't need to, i'm not i'm not that far i don't need my abstractions that big yeah or maybe it isn't maybe it's just a cockroach and maybe it's just a cockroach which is even better because i mean that's the old freudian thing sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and then exactly. george, and then george carlin added yeah and sometimes it's a big brown dick <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Oh, God. <sighs> All right. So what, what was the exercise we did? Then? Oh, my God. I think this is a, I think this is a perfect uh, place to begin our descent and in okay. our landing into LA, L, either LAX or JFK, wherever you prefer. By the way, total, total non sequitur, I've become obsessed with watching time-lapse cockpit videos. I didn't even know there was such a thing. It's new because normally you wouldn't have a camera that could – digitally hold eight you know six seven eight hours of footage that would be clean enough that you could speed it up and still have it in 4k but yeah it's a it's a trend and it is i hate flying it is the most peaceful thing in the world to see flight from the viewpoint of the people flying the plane it Mm. was oddly comforting when you're flying, what, what I hate about airplanes is when you're sitting in the fucking back of the fucking plane, you don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. You're just at the whim of everyone else. Fuck that. Show me what's going on in the air and then I'll feel beautiful. I'm like, how beautiful is all this? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That was a, a detour. I think all airplanes should just be glass. They're, they're working like, on that. Like Wonder Woman's plane. They're working on that. I saw that they're Virgin, uh, what's it called? Virgin... America, Virgin, whatever that, that Atlantic, the, yeah, Virgin, Virgin Atlantic. Atlantic. Uh, Richard Branson hired this imagineer, this former Disney Imagineer, to create um, a a clear fuselage. Now, granted, it's a it's fake, but it uses cameras to project what 
it's filming. So you're not really seeing the outside, but it looks like you're seeing the outside. Right. And I was like, that is the coolest fuck. Because it's the same fucking thing. Who cares? But but that to me is probably what the technology, like we also have the technology to do the cloak of invisibility from Harry Potter, but it's it's optical. It's not magic because we don't have magic. But as Arthur C. Clarke once said, What's the quote, the famous quote? Any new technology is considered magic until the batteries run out or something? Any significantly advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic, I believe. That's the quote. So what was the exercise? We got into a circle, and you asked everyone in this class if you could be any fictional character from anything, what would you what would you play that you think best exemplifies who you are and how you see yourself and you and did jafar i from did i Aladdin. guess i gave two answers i gave yeah. jafar and i gave scar and i did that after watching everyone else lie to Ooh. you to themselves and to us because wow. i was like you know damn well you aren't playing that person you know damn well that you don't sound anything like her. You know damn well. How are you going to say a black character? You white as snow. And just who <laughs> are you? And so I was the first person to actually answer that honestly. And the second I answered it honestly, I started seeing other people be honest. Mm. Because someone else had broken through. Because yeah. in those kind of situations, it's always tiptoeing of like, um, I I would be... Um, uh, Atticus Finch, you slime ball. <laughs> like you, you're, yeah. Like I had the guts to be like, I'd be fucking Jafar because I'm jealous and I have power and my power is going unutilized while some big fat sultan is wasting my space and not using, you know, I was an angry kid at that time. So, but yeah. that's what I would have played. And sure enough, every show that we did, everyone knew, wait for the moment for Lucas to have the Jafar moment. And by yeah. being Jafar, I was like, oh, well, every story has a villain. So I've just signed. I'm never a co-star. I'm the bad guy. The bad yeah. guy's a guaranteed regular, baby. Yeah, and it's the best part. And it's the funnest part to play because it's the most it's the most over-the-top and ridiculous. Yeah. They, they figured it out later, I guess around the time of The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, where they're like, the villain is the hero. We're just going to make oh, the, the yeah. same character. I mean, the you, again... This is, I think this might be the button. Ready? Yeah. There is no greater debate than the way Lucifer has been portrayed throughout the years. Is he the angel who gave mankind choice the villain? Because that sounds like a heroic act. See? Mm. Prometheus giving us fire. And in, oh, yeah. Like, he's the hero. Zeus is hoarding power. That's a way to look at it. So the question was, what makes good improv? How do we define good improv? I think that good, like, I think we've hinted at it. It all depends on what the perspective is. Good improv to an audience is funny and compelling. The audience does not give a flying fuck if you're sticking the, to the rules of yes and or if they don't care in fact right. if, if if someone steps out and it's the old joan rivers thing if someone steps out 
and is like, uh, what about the kids? What about the kids? And we don't have any kids, Charles. Then it's like, that's going to get a laugh. Yep. But if they sustain that, then it's good. It becomes bad when the audience realizes, oh, that was a mistake. Right. The audience just wants to believe that you guys are in control and that control is funny. And I think it might be the same. Good improv to an to a performer is, well, the audience... Okay, I'm not going to name names, but I once did a show. I'm not going to lie. I was coked out of my mind. But I, I once did a, an improv show where I was in a zone and mm-hmm. I felt like we were really kind of being... We've, we merged the Herald and Centralia. Right? Mm-hmm. So we were in that heavenly flow. Mm-hmm. And the audience was digging it. There was one part, like I stepped out. The, 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 uh, the, the suggestion, I believe, was, I think it was Spartacus, but it might have been the, some other figure like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I stepped out and did a scene where me and this other actress were uh like she was the queen and i was like her uh swordsman Mm -hmm. and i was we were talking about me defending her from this invading horde but what i was really doing was using the sword and the sheath to be like uh, let's fuck right Mm -hmm. but using this very flowery language of like my lady you know i would i would gladly thrust my blade into your quiver if you just gave me that chance and she would be like oh but i you know that old bullshit yeah and the second beat of it was that we had a kid and in my head i was like well uh uh i was the king now and so the scene started off with uh that two actresses one was was holding a baby and she was my queen the wife and the other was the wet nurse right and mm-hmm. they kept passing the baby back and forth. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want it. I don't want it. And I stormed out on set in a fucking burst of genuine inspired anger because I was the king. And I was like, I snatched the baby from out of their hands and I twisted its neck and <laughs> tossed and tossed both of its body parts to the side and told them, I would rather my baby be dead than have anyone not want to raise it like how if this is the king's child yeah. we will we will make a better one you should not be fighting and i when i snapped the kid's neck the audience did what you just did they went <gasps> and the actress one of the actresses who clearly hated that move picked the baby back up and instead of and which i i hated at the time but improv is improv baby if you leave if you leave room for someone else to make a change the change is made and yeah. she said something like well i'm glad you you know i found i i you know i'm glad that i could put his diaper back on and like she needed it to be okay which i don't yeah. judge her now <laughs> this was also 10 years ago i judged right. her then but i don't judge her now because everyone yeah. has the right to make their choices um, yeah but i'll never forget when, and in typical fashion, the show was on, the train was headed into Myth Station. And I was yeah. laying down some serious tracks. I said, there was one scene where there was a band that was so popular that we had all 1,000 songs on the Billboard charts were ours. <laughs> and, and then there was one band that came along that had the 1,001 song. And mm. then I said, 
and then a conspiracy brood. They tore the thousand name, the thousand songs off and burned them. And this new band had the number one hit record. Like we were, and I was doing that because I was thinking of the Bible and the apocryphal texts and all that shit. So I was, I was in the, the weeds of the matrix. When the show was over, everyone was mad at me because they were like, you were hogging the show and yada, yada. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. That was the greatest Herald I've ever been a part of. It actually yeah. was a Herald. And yeah. they, and then we got our notes and I will not say which teacher it was who I love to death, but his first note was obviously he was trying to mitigate how much he didn't like what we did and he wasn't trying to encourage it, but he said this, he said, well, all the improvised stuff was good. And when he said that, I said, I literally like, wait, say that again. So all the improv was good. All the improvised stuff was good. Well, we're doing improv. Goodbye. No more notes. And I walked away. Because what other notes do you need? Yeah. If, you, if you've been told the improv was all good, we're done. And I got a drink at the bar. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because in that moment, what is good? To right. me, it was good because I did the job of the Herald. Right. But, I, but I alienated some of my teammates, so I wasn't a good player. Right. The, I was rude to my coach, so that wasn't a good student. Right. I disrespected the I, – I, I overly challenged the audience that they weren't right. ready for, so that wasn't good. But I did have some people go, man, that was the greatest show I've ever seen. So then that was good. Cause I, right. So it's, it, it's in the eye of the beholder, I guess. It's just who – what are you trying to accomplish? I, you know, I wish I saw that set because I wonder – I really wonder what my reaction would be because, again, I have this dichotomy where, like, as a teacher, I know what rules are, and I know, you know, it's a team sport. But I also know in, in Chicago, we had the Michael Jordan rule, we called it. Mm. And the idea was when someone was on fire, you gave them the ball. Thank you. And you just shut up about it. It's not your night, Scottie Pippen. I mean, I will say that is more of the Doug Collins philosophy. And they did not win during the Doug Collins years. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. The Phil Jackson years were like, it's Zen and we're all together. Yes. <laughs> and let's support each other, which is true. But, you know, there was those nights where suddenly, like, Michael Jordan is hitting three-pointers. Yes. And they're like, he's never done that before, but let's keep giving the ball and see what happens. And okay. so we just called to the, you know, it was Chicago. Game, it was the 90s. I think that was game one or game two of the 92 against the uh, the Portland Trailblazers. The the infamous shrug game. Yeah, the shrug game. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he was like, I'll never hit this hey. many threes before. I was in Chicago in those days. Oh, my it God. Was a crazy time. Beautiful. I'm not a sports guy, but we watched all the games. We would go. I mean, the, the playoff games. I didn't sure. go you know, regular season. But, like, we literally, we would not go on stage because we were all watching the Bulls play if it was a playoff game. Oh, my God. And so we would, the, you know, the show would be delayed an hour. I love it. While we were backstage. I fucking think that is, <laughs> so crazy. That is such a cool moment of time. To yeah. have been in, to be doing, to be in Chicago as a comic, especially an improv comic, in yeah. the '90s when all the heavy hitters are emerging, yeah, at the same time that the greatest practitioner of the game of of his game was yeah. doing his game, yeah, like I can't, I, that's just magic. That's magical. It was a magical time. It was a magical, magical time. I'm glad I got to be part of it. I think it might be the same thing as as if you were a screenwriter in the 80s where it's like living in L.A. You got to write some of the most off-the-wall fucking shit and people were <laughs> putting it on at the yeah. same time that the L.A. Lakers was just running up and down the court, like just doing whatever they yeah. wanted. 
I love it. I'm, I am a huge sports fan because I think sports is the, which is ironic, again, another callback because I didn't take it as seriously, but sports is the uh, metaphorical cognate that I sometimes use to deal with anything relating to teams, teamwork, flow, individual success versus team success, being jealous of other people. I use basketball all the time and that helped me understand improv. It's like someone has to be the Jordan, someone has to be the Pippin. I loved being the Dennis Rodman, even mm-hmm. though a lot of the times I was looking around at the team and I was like, uh-oh, I got to be the Jordan tonight. Mm-hmm. But like learning all those roles, sports was a very cool, because sports is improv. Sports is yeah. practice, but then an improvised execution. Yeah, just be ready for whatever's going to happen. Exactly. So when when did you sort of make the transition? Because it sounds, it sounds like you made some sort of change from being... Um, I'm trying to find the, the, the best words, but, you know, sort of, you know, looking out for you versus looking out for the team as a whole, you know, and, and justifying whatever behavior. Sure. Cause I know that feeling of like, I delivered, I remember stepping off stage, you know, and hating, not hating, but being angry at my fellow players for like not running the direction I wanted to run. You yeah. know, and I was told by one of my teachers, a certain Chicago legend, who said, um, you know, that I get on my train and I want everyone to get on my train. He was like, why don't you get on someone else's train once in a while? And I remember just being so hurt and like, but my train's the funniest train. Shut up. And I don't know when the transition, it happened really on stage. My Chicago group was called Bang Bang. And there's some rough and tumble guys. I mean, we literally had fist fights in rehearsals. That's how seriously everybody took it. Yeah. It was, uh, I've said it before on this podcast, but you know, Michael Shannon, uh, Tracy Letts, who's a Wait a second. Are you fucking kidding me? No. You were on an improv team with Michael Shannon and Tracy Letts? Yeah. For about five years in Chicago. I I was in in my mental prep for this talk, was thinking about, am I going to talk about TJ and Dave at all? Because, you know, it's an improv, whatever, and I love what they do. Because I was thinking in my head that TJ and Dave represent when you don't have to be funny, you can do Mm -hmm. improv as theater. And yeah. the one of the 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 one TJ and Dave show that I saw because I'm also good friends with TJ's um, nephew, uh, oh. but one so I went with him and one of the the shows I saw the fucking special guests were Michael Shannon and Tracy Letts and it was like yeah. watching a fucking Broadway a scripted Broadway play yeah it was so good well that's what we tried to do in Chicago was because they were like Steppenwolf guys. And there was a bunch of us that were like Second City guys. Mm-hmm. We tried to use like the tools of Second City to create Steppenwolf style theater. Mm. That was sort of our goal. But I, I just loved getting laughs, which would often derail, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> what we were trying to do. I was like, but guys, I'm funny. And the audience is laughing at me. And in my mind, I'm like, I think a good 60% of the audience is here just for me. No one was polled. This is an unscientific <laughs> measurement. But in my head at that time, you know, as a young, arrogant, you know, guy who who generally got laughs, um, I th- I th- I thought the proof was in the pudding. Like I got laughs tonight. Yeah. And it's it's just sort of what you're saying, describing that one show. There's plenty of shows where like, no, we're all on different trains, all on different tracks. Some of them didn't have tracks. Um, no, John Henry's looking out for us, and but I would walk off stage and them being like, we killed, right? We killed, you know, but it was only through the point of view of my filter at that time, what was important, um, which was looking funny for a certain 
I ladies think, in the yeah, house. Yeah, well, there you go. I Same way, but with boys. Yeah. Um, you know, of age men. You know, it was during during a Bang Bang show, like, and, and backstage and getting notes where, like, it, it became, it was probably abusive and an unhealthy, you know, environment, but, but they were like, it was actually a guy by the name of Paul Dillon who said, drop that fake shit and blow me. He said on stage in front of an audience when I was like doing some object work. Uh huh. And he was literally saying, you know, within the context of the scene, like, quit miming. Sure. I'm not interested in mime, which I was like, I'm an improviser and we do object mm-hmm. work. And this sure. is how we create a reality. Like, you're, you know, it's like running up to Michael Jordan and saying, you can't play basketball. I'm like, but this, this, I have to shoot it in the hoops. Yes. You know, I have to do my object. Work. Like, what I am I supposed sh- to do? Now? I have to shoot it in the hoops. I've never heard, <laughs> I've never heard Michael Jack, or Michael Jordan sound so faggoty. I'm like, oh. hey, well, girl, we got to shoot it in the hoops. Phil, I'm not trying to be that guy, but you got to get me the ball and get out the damn way because I got to shoot it in the hoops. It's just like, that just would be hilarious if Michael was played that way. Oh, my God. Please make this movie. Please, <laughs> please, for me. He, he, Michael Jordan in this version Michael Jordan is so gay Dennis Rodman calls him a faggot like Dennis Rodman is like you fucking faggot what are you doing ooh Dennis you know I saw you in that uh, wedding dress girl you got good hips now give me that ball set that pick it's just like that would be hilarious <laughs> oh. you're gonna give me an asthma attack I'm so sorry Yes. So oh, I'm not, anyway, wait, uh, no, that, I'm so sorry. That reminds me of another thing, just to get yeah. a sense of who I am. Yeah. So a good friend of ours that we know, I, I'll use her name, Julia Morales. You know, Julia oh yeah, Morales. the best. Yeah, the best. Great. So she had a medical situation a long time ago. Yes. And she was in the hospital, and we came to visit her because we were all on a on an independent team together. And she said that the nurse, she, we were just chatting and she started laughing and she said, you know what? You can't make me laugh. The nurse said that if I laugh, I could die. And, I, and You started lying. doing bits. I started doing bits. I was like, if I, if I can kill my friend with jokes, oh my man, God. that would be legendary. But oh you know, God. she was, she was exaggerating and I was exaggerating <laughs> too. But like, I, that's just, when it comes to comedy, I am that competitive. I get so angry when someone else is funny. I, yeah. Oh my God. Me too. Um, I've, I've learned to, I, over time, I've learned to really appreciate uh, other people Same. Uh, and what they bring that's different, you know what I mean? As opposed to just confirming my exactly. own view of the work, you know what I mean? But to find other people that like, I couldn't do what they do, but I'm like, I get that now. You know, it took, it took a long time. Anyway, one of the instances was bang, bang, Paul Dillon saying, drop that fake shit and blow me. But also what he was saying was sort of what, you know, uh, re- relates to what you were saying earlier about the third beat has to be big. He was saying, you know, that fake shit is the intention, the fake intention, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. um, I, my ratio of entertainment was 98% entertainment, 2% art and exploration, you know? And he was basically saying the entertainment is not as valuable, you know, amongst us as players, but also for our particular audience and what they they were hoping for, because it was, Chicago in the 90s and we were a rock and roll little improv group that was trying to do something dark and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that moment for me, and it took a while because at first it, it really stung, you know, because it was in front of an audience because I didn't know how to react. And I can't even, t- I don't know what happened the rest of that scene. I probably just stood there 
dumbfounded, like, I don't know what to do. Maybe. Or maybe I tried to fight through it and prove him that I was really funny and silly. I honestly have no memory of the rest of that show. Mm. Because it hit me so hard that, like, I was I was using improv and improv groups selfishly to put, to put myself out there. And it, then that began the journey. And it was really with Burn Manhattan in New York and Shira Piven as a great director getting me to check all that. I still have to check it. I still, every single time I walk on stage, I have to remember it's a team sport. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'll have an opportunity to shine and step up and give my closing arguments and whatnot. But really my job is to be a team player. So that's my story. How did you, was it any particular event? Was it a slow evolution? Um, How did you get from being Lu- the Lucas of old to the Lucas I, of now? I think it was a slow, a slow evolution, but it was so like to go use another sports metaphor. There are plenty of players in the NBA who like a LeBron James. I'm not mm-hmm. comparing myself to him, but I'm saying his this do model. Just LeBron James picked a squad to go to and told the GMs who to put around him. Mm. It was at that moment when I was like, oh, people can do their own improv shows. So I started putting up my own improv shows and casting the improvisers accordingly. Like I did uh, an improvised exorcism show. And I was like, well, there's only one other person in this theater, like at my level, who I trust to be be the exorcist for me. And that Mm -hmm. was Jeff Grimwood. Because I was like, every Mm. time I perform with Jeff Grimwood, that man, he, he, you, you might shock him, but... He, like, kind of like you guys. He's another Chicago guy who really yep. takes this seriously. He's great. And he's a great actor. He's a great actor and a and a loving improviser who views mm-hmm. your choices as gifts. And mm-hmm. so I was like, if I if I'm playing with that kind of a yes ander, that gives me license to go crazy. And if my show is I'm, I, he needs to exercise me. Well, I'm possessed by the devil. Anything I do is justified because <laughs> I can blame it on the devil. So I yeah. just crafted – it was at that moment that I was like, oh, just craft your own projects where you have the license, where it's understood that you're the lead and everyone else is there to compliment you. Like when you're on an improv squad, that's, your, that's not your show. Like that's your, that's your theater's show. And the theater yeah. is telling you you're playing as part of an ensemble. So right. in that regard, you have to respect that, that relationship. But if you're right. creating your own show – and you're, you build the show and you build the team, fuck you, that's my show. If you don't want to be, if you don't want right. to play by my rules, you ain't in the show anymore. Right. And, and that's when, and that's a perfectly legitimate uh, way to do both. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, that's all I've ever done. I've never been on a house team. I've only been in self-selecting groups. There it is. And that's my favorite thing to do. Like, you're an example of someone, I'm like, that's somebody I want to play with. I can do that. I don't have to wait for a jam and hope that we get thrown together a week exactly. for a house team. We're going to go play this weekend. It's going to happen. And by the way, I think that when this pandemic ends, I hope that the, the theaters realize that and stop. And instead of having this dumb SNL mentality of we're just going to pluck random people that we think should be on a team, yeah. I would start encouraging. I hope that the pit, because it's like the last man standing in New York, but yeah. I would encourage the, the theaters to let people create their own teams which I know that UCB started flirting with and had some success. I mean, one of the teams that they created went on to have a Netflix show. And yeah. so it's like, yeah. um, I think the reason why is because sometimes, in, like you said, 
imagine if all the house teams were Centralias. Like you have one Centralia, but you have one Neutrino and you right. have one Herschel. Like, right. you know, I threw in my group. But like yeah. people, friends who want to play together because they, they know each other, they trust each other, and they complement each other. Instead of, I don't like playing with that guy that you put me on a fucking squad right. with. Like, I don't want to do this. And I think ultimately, there's, there's a playwright named uh, Candido uh, Tirado. Mm-hmm. He's a local New York playwright. And he, you know, we, we were working together on something. And, and, and he was giving me relationship advice. Because I was talking about a girl that I was really hung up on. We lived together. So, you know, I did something right. But there was something missing. And he was like he sort of boiled down to, he says, you have to have the same view of the universe, Mm. right? You either believe in the same God or the same, whatever, you know, you have to have the same view of the universe in order for it to work. And I realized two things, you know, that like that relationship wasn't going to work. And then the other was, why was she Jewish? (laughs) I no, I, I married, I married a Jew. Oh, see, um, no, she, you know, she likes psychics and I don't know. She didn't oh, have a, a clear sure. defined, you know, vision of the universe. And mine was just nihilism. So, which is hard to, you know. Wow. I, they, and they say opposites attract. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. But, but the other thing was like, I really started to realize I need to surround myself with people that see the universe the same way I do. Yes. Like in everything, in the work. And I think it extends to improv groups. I mean, the reason you're self-selecting is you may be doing this unconsciously, but you're trying to find other people that see the world from the same vantage point as you or that have the same philosophical argument, Yes, if you will. Which is why when you are developing TV shows and whatnot, you have to have that at the beginning. You need to be at the... You need to have a producer who sees what you're trying to accomplish. You need to have executives at the studios who see what you're trying to accomplish. You have to have writers and performers who understand the vision. Because yeah. I don't get, I, I'm like, what I'm learning is if I have, if one of these projects that I'm working on should go, my message to the crew is like, I need you to be involved in the vision. Because I trust you to fucking put the camera where the fucking camera needs to go. That's why we hired oh, yeah. you. You're a fucking yeah. cameraman. You're awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And the actors, I'm like, I'm not going to hound you with notes. You're an actor. You know what the fucking lines are. But yeah. if we all agree on, I'm going to hound you on the vision. Because the vision is mine. Right. I, like, the acting, the performance is yours. The putting the camera and lighting it this way so that you get that little Rembrandt triangle, that's your job. My hmm. job is to make sure that this is... when I, I'm saying when I'm the boss. Again, yeah. if I'm... I've been... Let me put it this way. I've played three crackheads, right, on TV. Yeah. Yeah. And my personal views on the depiction of black men as crackheads is not relevant. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm being yeah. hired. I'm not yeah. being hired to stop the, say, cut. I don't actually think this is doing um, uh, justice to the depiction of African American. Nope. You've been paid to do a job. Just hit yeah. the fucking mark. Say your lines as a crackhead. Do the best you can. Let yeah. them deal with it because that's their vision. And if their vision is bad, they will be punished for it, not you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that to me is the broader relationship, I think, to improv is like, so I'm on an improv group out here in, uh, at the Groundlings, right? And uh, it's very loosey-goosey. It's it's like one of those shows that's invite only kind of Mm -hmm. where the people that run it, it's basically playing with your friends and he has carte blanche to put whoever he wants in the show. 
And I kind of insinuated myself into it and kind of a, was a, a regular. And I felt, you know, I spread my wings a little bit, see how much I could get away with and found a nice mm-hmm. little comfortable thing. But it's not my show. And so my job when I go there is to not, is to fight every urge I might have to do what I said before of like tank the show just to be fun. It's not my show to do that. So I have to learn. I learned how to respect that. Um, But to answer your question uh, from many minutes ago, yeah, I I think it was the moment that I realized improv doesn't pay you any money and you get paid for your individual skill set. And so you need to start learning what your individual skill set is so that it's at that moment particularly under the direction of Kevin Labson at the, at the pit when mm-hmm. showcases started to become more like they, like more people from like networks were coming to watch showcases and yeah. showcases are individual stuff. You're not, you, you don't showcase as a team. Right. And so I had to shift focus a little. And when I started doing that, I started realizing, Oh my God, this is the best thing of all time because it's just you on stage with something you've created. It's not yet stand up, so you don't have to fucking be, you know, be spooked by that yet. But yeah. it's you get to do characters and you get to you you know, you set up a bit, you put on a funny wig and you do your bit. And that got me managers, agents, it got me to LA and I couldn't be happier. But the number one moment I think that I realized that going it alone is maybe is is an an eventual thing. Mm-hmm. It is on that team, Stranger, we had a young woman on our team whose name, if you recall, was, is Michelle Wolf. Mm-hmm. And Michelle Wolf went lone wolf because she asked the team, she's like, I kind of want to get into stand-up. And I, from what I recall, most people on the team were like, don't leave the team. Be a team. It's improv. And I remember yeah. saying, fuck this team. Go do stand-up. <laughs> and I'm you not, were right. You're the and, reason and I, Michelle I mean, Wolf is Michelle Wolf. I'm sure yeah. that she already was going to make that decision, but yeah. I literally was like, "Fuck this team, go do your own thing." And That's boy, so did she ever do her own fucking thing, and is now famous. Yes, before she did stand up, she was doing like uh, solo shows. She did She mm-hmm. Wolf, and That's where right. she did characters and stuff. And I gave her notes. You know, she just asked me like, "Would you mind watching me giving notes?" And I remember watching the show, thinking, "She is so funny." Yeah. Why is she wasting her time yeah. on a house team? Yes. But it was not something I could say, but I knew it. I was just like, because, you know, you've been around long enough, certain people fly by and you're like, they've got something, they've got something, they've got something, you know. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does. And she was one of those people. And it was a it was a real surprise. It wasn't until I saw her doing her solo stuff that I realized how good she was. Yeah. Because she was struggling with the impro. And here's the, here's the thing, that team that I was on, which was mean to me, yeah. was even worse to her because yes. she was the only girl and as strong as she was and she would get some fucking delicious ass laughs, boy, people would step over her and, and try to box her out from beats and jokes. And I, I mean, I think in one, uh, in one respect, it motivated her to say well fuck these assholes and yeah. go her own way but yeah. i also think it gave her the understanding of okay men suck yeah and men are all over comedy so if i'm gonna be successful at this i'm glad i at least got to learn how to bump up with dudes and yeah. get physical because now she's playing with 
the most successful men yeah. in comedy history. It's absolutely insane. I see the pictures and it's like Chris Rock, yeah, Chappelle, Michelle Wolf. It's I'm like it's what, it's, and it's exactly where she should be yeah. because she treats. We were talking about this earlier. She treats comedy the same way that Kobe Bryant treats basketball. She would write more jokes than anyone I've ever seen. Yeah. She wanted to rehearse more than anyone. Like I hated rehearsing. I thought rehearsal was stupid because I thought we should just go out and hang out because then being comfortable with each other, we can improvise better. But rehearsing yeah. all that, I was like, ah. But she was like, no, we have to work at this. Her work ethic is yeah. unparalleled. And there it is. There it is. There you have it. All right, I have two questions, and then we'll wrap up. What are you working on now? I guess that's one question. Um, I'm right now. I have a ton of projects in development, and I don't mean that in the the lame way of like, you know, I'm working on some things. I've got some ideas percolating. Yeah. I've I've got projects set up at Sony and FX and 20th Century Fox, but they're still in that awful limbo of yeah. where you're getting notes and you're looking for buyers and you're taking out pitches. And yeah. so I'm, which I did successfully two years, three years ago, the show didn't get on, but like, I'm still in the growing pains of like learning the game of pitching, selling, developing. So that's right. what I'm working. And, and every time I get an audition for a terrible TV show, I find my new game is to find new ways to say, I can't do it because I, <laughs> I hate it. I hate oh, that's a good, why that's am a good I place auditioning? To be, though. Yeah. yeah. Why am I auditioning to be in someone else's garbage when I, I should be getting paid to create my own garbage. Yeah. Again, yeah. I'm not suggesting this is a, this is a line I hope I get to use many times. I'm never suggesting that what I write is better than what everyone else is writing. I am suggesting it's as bad. It's at least as bad. So yeah. fuck them for getting. I'm not auditioning against thirty other fucking brown-skinned Afro-wearing people to be the fucking coon in someone else's fucking three-camera sitcom. Oh. Girl, Miss Miss Havisham, um, Miss <laughs> Havisham, excuse me, Miss Havisham, um, your mail's here, your mail's here, Miss Havisham, and she's like, um, Reggie, how many times have I told you, stop calling me Miss Havisham? You make me sound like a slave owner. Well, maybe that's how I feel. Like I don't need that. I don't need that. <laughs> like ew. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Question sorry. Number two. <laughs> so funny. So funny. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you being a person of color, uh, it's an extra layer. But I totally get, like, the few auditions I ever went on in my life, I would be like, why? Yeah. Why? I have no interest when I would go and play, although it was sweaty, you know, to 100 people in a tiny black box in New York. I'm like, that's all I want to do. Yeah. I don't want you know, and that, again, it's int intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. I would, I knew people, I know people who've gone on to be famous. Yes. Right. And, Same. Uh, uh, yeah. Are they happier? I don't know. Some are because they're doing what they want to do. You know, the, those, the people that hit the sweet spot of like really being an artist and expressing themselves and also cashing big checks, um, you know, they won the lottery, but for the most part, people are like happy to get their, 10 lines and some terrible show. It's so funny you said lottery because when people win the lottery, you actually hear stories of how awful their lives become. Yep. Um, and Joe Schiappa once said something to me when he was coaching my team. Um, and it was one of the most profound things I've ever heard anyone say. He said, 
and, and I don't know if this was him or if he got this from someone else, but who cares? It's a lesson that was passed on. And he said that success does not cure your problems. It only makes whatever your problems are harder to deal with. So wow. if, you, if you're a, an addict, mm-hmm. boy, are you going to become a bigger addict. If you're insecure, you're going to become more insecure. If you're a tyrant, you're only going to become more tyrannical. If you are a bully, success is only going to bring out the bully. If you are, um, you know, indecisive, well, fuck, don't be, don't have, you can, how are you going to handle when you have to make all the decisions? You know, it's like success only brings out, success brings out, can bring out the worst in a person. And yet knowing that I'm like, well, what if the worst part of you is the best part of you? Again, Jafar. Yes, exactly. You know what I have said repeatedly over the last four years? I said to myself, why is it that Donald Trump gets to be Donald Trump? Because there are so many people who would do so many great things if they could be Donald Trump. And he was the one, the one person who never should have been allowed to be Donald Trump was Donald Trump. It's so ironic. And yet it's so Shakespearean. Yep. He is, he is our first genuine Shakespearean character because I can't, I was watching the old SNLs on Peacock with my roommate. They mentioned Donald Trump. I'm watching old movies. He's in them. I'm listening yeah. to rap records I grew up with. They're referencing him. I'm watching yeah. American Psycho. They're name dropping him. He's everywhere. Yeah. And look at the fall. He is our first bona fide. I guess you could say the Kennedy family was also Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. Um, but but of, of our in our lifetime. Of our say. lifetime, yeah. Like, Certainly. my goodness. Trump so became huge. the... Um, can you even imagine if Shakespeare wrote a, a play? And maybe he did. Um, about this was there any play where a king turns an army of his followers in on his own kingdom and tries to burn down the castle and when he's caught he says um oh my god can i can i do a line reading of the most cold-bloodedest fucking thing ever do it when he when we found out that he said this i was like this motherfucker donald trump is a dragon he said, it's the Kevin McCarthy phone call. He said, when Kevin McCarthy called and said, Mr. President, you have oh, yeah. to call off your goons. Yeah. And he was like, these are not my goons. And he was like, these are your goons. And he says, well, I'm sorry, Kevin. I guess they're just more mad about the election than you are. And I hear that and I go, do you know how many actors could take that line and deliciously deliver that moment a hundred years from now on an American Broadway stage where they're like, that line to me is the American equivalent of, you know, oh, I wish I knew plays better, but what's like a great line from a villain? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like a great villain line yeah. in Shakespeare. Like that to me feels like, wow. All I can think of is Richard the Third, and that's... Uh, what, is he, what does he say? And thus I clothe my naked villainy. Something, something when most I play the devil. That's early in the play where he's just sort of saying, I'm the bad guy. And then, of course, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. But that's that's later. Uh, did Iago ever say anything cold-blooded to Othello? Not directly to him because he's always pretending to be Othello's friend. And he's the one who says, you should strangle your wife. 
strangle her in bed. She's contaminated even the bed. And he does say, you know, he reveals his villainy to the audience for sure. I saw Andre Holland and Mark Rylance do Othello at the Globe in London. And it was maybe the greatest theatrical experience Uh. of my life. And I've seen thousands of plays. I've seen some crazy plays in my life. And I tell you, I was wrapped the entire time. I was shaken by the end of it. Just the experience. And I know it's not the original Globe. It was rebuilt. But it's within 100 feet of where the original Globe was. Absolutely tremendous experience. Demand me nothing, Kevin. What you know, you know. From this time forth, I never will speak word. Could you imagine Donald Trump saying that in response to what did you what did you know about these traitors? Demand me nothing. What you know, you know. From this time forth, I never will speak word. Ew. You need to write this. After you do the Michael Jordan. Oh, the gay Michael Jordan? <laughs> Girl, right. I am 6'6". Six, six. Do you want to be the other six? <laughs> I'm really, I think I'm 6'6", six, six, but I'm actually 6'6". Six, six, six. That other six is my penis. <laughs> Thank you for entertaining me. Um, <laughs> I got to get to the last question. It's time for the last question with Lucas Hazlitt. That was my last question. I was not expecting... No one expects the, the, the last music. question theme song. Well, usually the theme song is put in post. You just said, yeah. fuck it. Boop, 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 boop. I'm not? in. I'm in, Why baby. not? Why not? I, I, the band has been sitting here for two hours. Oh, no. Yo, Kevin, when can we play these drums, man? My kid, man. I got to see my kid. <laughs> He's in daycare. Shut He's up. Man, this nobody my- want to hear you drumming anyway, nigga. You know, you can't even keep time, man. That's not fair, man. I can keep time. <laughs> Look, it's my vision. <laughs> All right, so um, you've already given a lot of improv moments, but what's your top improv moment either that you performed Ooh. in or that you watched? Okay, there are so many, but I will have to say, and the irony is I've already, there's a video of me explaining this moment on YouTube. Um, mm. yeah, uh, Nate Dern, the former artistic director at UCB was putting together like a improv documentary and was mm-hmm. asking people, you know, great transformative moments. Right. And so mm-hmm. I was explaining to him that I was currently in a class with Michael Delaney at the time. You know, you know, Michael Delaney. Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, you worked with him for a little bit, right? Didn't you guys cross paths? We are paths crossed. We were around in the scene at the same time. Yeah. Um, so he was a he's not my favorite teacher, but he was a brilliant improviser. And, but he every once in a while would drop like these kind of guru tidbits of information. And one of them was when you're doing a pattern game, a lot of people, uh, you start drawing this. And he was like, a lot of people start in the middle and they go out and then they come back to the the word, they go out, they come back to the word and and then they sweep at it. And he showed the picture and what he drew was a, a, like a dandelion, a flower. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he said, what it really should be is you start in the middle and you circle it um, with one idea and then you start all, uh, you circle it again with another idea. And, you it, and he showed us and he drew an atom and he was like, this is an atom. This is the building blocks of all life and it's one of the most explosive forces in nature. When you're doing pattern games, stop giving me gardens with flowers and start blowing shit up on stage for me. And I was like, whoa. And so a moment that made me feel that way was it was a UCB show. And the first scene 
was uh, this dude, this this performer whose name I believe was Eric Tanoy, and he was the academic uh, guy at the school. Like he ran like the school stuff, mm-hmm. um, and he was Benjamin Franklin, and it and he had a ditzy uh, intern. That was basically the game was mm-hmm. ditzy, you know, Valley Girl intern, but in seventeen. 91 with Benjamin Franklin <laughs> and you know it was a very straightforward uh scene of like you know I'm Benjamin Franklin and I blah blah and she'd be like Mr. Yeah. Franklin I don't mean it and yeah. so then he beat number two right yep. he comes out and he wheels he sits on a chair and he wheels himself out clearly in a wheelchair right so who is yeah. he uh, Roosevelt. Exactly. She didn't catch that, but she just she thought he was still being Benjamin Franklin, and mm. said, "Mr. Franklin, yada yada." And his reaction was, mm, "I would really prefer you use my last name when direct." So he yes anded Franklin, and mm-hmm. merged her mistake with his choice, and made her mistake seem like the bigger, smarter choice, because wow. it's yes it yes anded. And was the second beat, and the, the 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 laugh was so big they just swipe edited swipe edited right there. Wow! They, they, because it was like you can't get a better laugh than can't get any better, and that's a pure improv moment. And that's a pure improv moment. Taking a, a quote unquote mistake and turning it around, I would not have thought Franklin Roosevelt. Like it would take me a while to realize that it was the same word. Yes, I I think that there the one of the things at UCB that I did notice when I was there is it attracted a certain literate uh, clientele, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like really book smart, wordy, clever, referential people. And and there's a skill set for that. Like you need to be able to hang on a word um, and turn that word into anything. Um, That's a skill I learned also from some teachers at the pit, Uh, particularly Ashley Ward uh, once uh, did some exercise where she was like – you have to play, we'll play a little game where everything you say, everything one person says, the next person has to say their next line and they have to use one word that the other person said. Mm-hmm. And that taught me to really listen because I know at some point someone's, and this is also a, a trick for when you don't want to listen to someone, but you want to make them think that you are, just wait for one word and then use that word back at them and they go, he was really listening to me. And it's like, no, I wasn't. I was just yeah, waiting you could to use say that one in life word. You can use that or on stage. I learned that from uh, listening to just Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Like, they always did that. Like, hand, hand me the gauze. The gauze? Yeah, hand me the gauze. The gauze. I am 100% sure that that's ultimately where that came from because those two are the epitome. Like you're saying right now, they're the epitome of two people locked in, listening, and telling the audience they're listening because they would do that wordplay. Mm-hmm. And and that shit's just it's brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant, brilliant stuff. It's brilliant. Speaking um, of brilliant, Lucas has. Yes, sir. You're brilliant. Thank you. So are you, my friend. Where can people find you? What's your Twitter? It's at my full name, Lucas Zachary Haslam. Enjoy the rest of the apocalypse. Dude, thank you. It's been you're one, one my, hell of a ride. Awesome. You're one of my all-time favorite people. Oh my god. And I do not say that to many people. I appreciate that. Uh, the the feeling is incredibly mutual. What I mean is that I'm one of my favorite people as well. There you have it. 
That was Lucas Hazlitt. Be sure to check him out on Twitter, Lucas Zachary Hazlitt, with the at thing in front that you do on Twitter. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it directly on our page on anchor.fm. Be sure to like, subscribe, give a give a comment. Those comments help wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, fashion tips, be sure to send them to centraliaimprovisation at gmail.com. Find us on the Twitters and the Instas and the Facebooks. Until then, we'll see you next time on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. <laughs>